At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. terrific in the first season of Only Murders in the Building. Absolutely phenomenal. I knew he was a great talent, and I knew he was very passionate about talking about tantric sex. I had no idea he was capable of being this funny and this self-deprecating. He is phenomenal. If you haven't seen Only Murders in the Building, do yourself a favor. As soon as this show is over, go and watch it, because it's just really terrific. Hey, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about what's happening in Russia these days. Uh, There is a war that has just passed its six-month anniversary. And one of the frustrating things for me is, is that in the United States, so much of the media seems to be focused on telling only one side of the story, which is the Ukrainian side. Now, uh, and by the way, almost every politician in Washington, Democrat and Republican, they seem to only be about promoting the Ukrainian side. Now, when I say that to people, either on the radio or at a bar or at a family function, people look at me as if I've just spit in their face. They said, what do you mean? There's not there is only one side. This James Bond style villain, Vladimir Putin. Uh, invaded his peace-loving neighbor that never attacked him. The fact is, I don't think Putin did the right thing in Russia. But the fact of the matter is, the truth about what happened and the context of the events that led to this conflict with Ukraine is much more nuanced than that. Again, I'm not excusing Putin invading Ukraine, but it would be nice to hear some of the context on American media. So what I've tried to do since this war started is present to you alternative views that you have not, and a diversity of alternative views. Not all people that agree the same way. Um, people in the United States, people in Russia, people in else, uh, other countries, people on the left, people on the right, people in between that are willing to tell a different narrative. One of those people has been Mark Sloboda. Uh, He is an American, 
But he is based in Moscow these days. He is a security and international affairs and security analyst based in Moscow and a former contributing political analyst at RT. Mark, thank you for joining me on the radio again. Frank, thanks for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on the other side of midnight again. Uh, the honor is uh, is all mine. Now, remind folks, uh, Mark, um, how long have you been in Russia and uh, how did you end up in Russia initially? Yeah, uh, almost two decades. Um, and um, I mean, there are several reasons, but the primary reason is my wife. Uh, my wife, uh, I met in Boston when uh, she was working for uh, her company's global headquarters there. And I had just got out of the military and was uh, working as a semiconductor engineer. The American military, uh, to be clear. Yeah, the American. Yeah, the American military. I've never served in the Russian military. Um, uh, I was a nuclear reactor operator in, in the American, uh, the U.S. Navy. Um, and I met my wife uh, actually in a golf club. Um, and she is from Crimea. Uh, which uh, some people, uh, I guess the U.S. government, still considers part of Ukraine. Um, and uh, my mother-in-law still lives in Crimea, and we have family all over East Ukraine, uh, in Kharkov, Odessa, uh, the, the Donbass. And um, on, one thing that is, is left behind is not only the Russian side of this intervention, uh, which to me is actually of secondary importance, but there has been a continual effort since the Ukrainian government was overthrown in 2014 by, I'm sorry, an openly U.S.-backed putsch, to to completely silence the voices of the people of East Ukraine, which did not approve of the Maidan, did not overthrow of the government they had overwhelmingly elected. Not because Yanukovych was such a great guy, but lesser of two evils, they voted him in to keep the other people who would seize power mm -hmm. out. And there are tens of thousands of Ukrainians fighting uh, alongside Russian forces in this. In fact, in the Donbass, they're actually bearing the heavy brunt of the hand-to-hand -hand, uh, infantry fighting. Um, so they're fighting for, as they see it, their freedom from a government in, in Kiev uh, that does not represent them and seized power overthrew the government they had elected. And there are thousands of Ukrainians all across the country who have been arrested and disappeared as collaborators, right? Traitors, collaborators. Just a few weeks, just a couple of weeks ago, the uh, president of the Kiev regime, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, he fired his head of his intelligence service, the SBU, who was actually a lifelong friend, and the head of his federal prosecutors, because there were some 600 members of the intelligence services uh, and the uh, Justice Department in, in Ukraine that were identified as traitors and collaborators. Why, why are so many... Mm. Ukrainians against this regime. That's the question that is uh, no, never I, I, asked. Absolutely. And uh, heaven forbid anybody question the, the motives of St. Zelensky and you're, you're banished to Siberia. I want to I, I get to that. I want to ask you about that. Just uh, curious, uh, do you maintain your American citizenship as well? Yeah, um, kind of by default, because you mm. kind of have to pay a thousands of dollars to get right, rid of right, your U.S. citizenship, right? right? And um, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I still have it. Um, and um, if I could, 
it's complicated. Okay. Um, do you still I might do you still vote in American elections, for instance? Oh no, no, no. no. I okay. think that would be I think that would be wrong. Um, I when I first came here, I was actually working with the U.S. Embassy. I became the uh, chairman of Democrats Abroad here, um, and I was uh, I uh, was working with the embassy to get Americans in Russia, uh, uh, you know, which at the time was a considerable number, um, uh, uh, registered for election, which is a really hard thing to do in the U.S. to get elected abroad. Every state has different Byzantine rules, and, and it has all has to be done by mail, and you have to send it and receive it back and send it back. It's it's absolutely absurd. Um, and uh, yeah, I uh, everyone goes through their political evolution, and yeah, I. I I basically worked in a campaign to to mea culpa uh, get John Kerry elected. I'm I'm sorry for that, <laughs> but it didn't work. So, uh, well, uh, I I guess uh, I I appreciate you putting your cards on the table. All right, before we talk about the latest with this Russia Ukraine war, um, uh, want to touch upon briefly your view of the legacy of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last president of the Soviet Union. Uh, such an interesting guy and an interesting historical figure because there's been so many articles and books written about Gorbachev in both the West and in Russia, both while he was alive and in the last few days since he's died, with utterly conflicting things that people say about Gorbachev. Here's a sample of some of the things that were written about him while he was alive. These were all from articles or books written about him while he was alive. And I'm just saying this not necessarily for your benefit, but for the audience's. The greatest reformer in Russian history, the leader who destroyed his own country, a great idealist, a man who betrayed his own party ideals, a great humanist, a great prince of darkness, the father of Russian democracy, the leader who blocked real democratization in Russia, a brave and courageous leader, a timid and indecisive leader, communism's greatest heretic, communism's last defender. A masterful politician, a great bungler, the liberator of Eastern Europe, and the man who gave away Russia's security. All of those things written about the same guy. Now, uh, I I think you and I uh, probably have differing views on this, and that's great. But I'm curious what what your take is on the legacy of Gorbachev and uh, what you think his legacy is and why. Yeah, I I don't think I'll speak to to my... uh opinion of Gorbachev because I didn't live through him, but uh, Russians did. All right. And the rest of the people of the former Soviet Union and and my wife did. Um, And the approval rating of Gorbachev is less than 20 percent, more than 80 percent of of Russians disapprove of the legacy of Gorbachev and 75 percent of Russians regret the passing of the Soviet Union. And I've got a few numbers for you here. Um, as a result of the events that, that uh, Gorbachev started in the mid-80s with his economic reforms, perestroika, uh, restructuring, and uh, you know what happened with his predecessor, his, his, um, I'm sorry, his, uh, those who came after him, Yeltsin in particular, of course. Um, and without Gorbachev, there could have been no Yeltsin. Uh, but Russian GDP, just the Russian Federated Soviet Republic to the to to the Russian Federation, uh, dropped by 40 percent. Real wages were cut in half. Poverty ballooned from less than a million 
before he took office to 2.2 million in 87 to 88 to 66 million in 93-95. The ruble crashed. Pensions uh, uh, and savings were wiped out across the country. Uh, millions died under the brutal regime of shock therapy and privatization. The suicide rate for men went through the roof. More than half a million women were sold into sex slavery. Life expectancy dropped for over five, by over five years, particularly higher among men. And all of that, only in the last decade, has Russia recovered from that, which is why Putin's popularity is so high and Gorbachev's uh, popularity uh, and, and Yeltsin, who followed him, is so low. It's kind of like taking two or two and a half Great Depressions and squeezing them into a couple year period. Mm. No, no, I, I can understand that. That being said, even if Gorbachev's approval rating is only around 20 percent, that still represents millions of people who at least sure. have some sort of approval in Russia for uh, Gorbachev and his legacy. Do you think with that in mind, should Vladimir Putin have gone to Gorbachev's funeral, which he did not do? Um, I guess I would leave that to a personal choice. Um, I, I think part of the logic here is not only is he incredibly popular, and Putin personally has no respect for him, considers him a naive appeaser who basically gave everything away without getting any type of security guarantees, uh, without, uh, you know, getting anything on paper. He trusted uh, uh, George Bush um, just to an amazing uh, degree. He was uh, completely naive. Um, Putin did go to Yeltsin's funeral. No, uh, I realize. Yeah, but, I, all the yeah. more reason I think he should go to Gorbachev's. Yeah. But uh, Gorbachev is not receiving a full state funeral because he was not the president of Russia. Mm -hmm. He was the first and last president of the Soviet Union. Sure. Well, I guess that makes sense. Now, um, six months into this Russia-Ukraine war, what is your perception of how things are going? Um, I, contrary to what uh, a lot of, of what is being said in the Western media, um, uh, first of all, I think the war is a, is a tragedy. Um, I, uh, I, I believe that the intervention was necessary, but that doesn't mean that I, I am not you know, continually um, saddened uh, to, to a very high degree because I have family in East Ukraine. Um, and um, it is – Russia is obviously winning the intervention despite the entirety of NATO now being arrayed against it uh, with the, the training, the arming, the funding, um, the targeting, uh, the intelligence, everything basically. Um, so, I mean, it's essentially a, a NATO proxy force uh, that Russia and Donbass are, are fighting there. And the West is waging an existential economic war against Russia, using its control of the global and financial system uh, to try to cut Russia out of the global markets entirely. And that hasn't gone too good for them, in case you didn't notice the price of gas at the pump and even worse, the price of energy uh, this winter. 
uh, and inflation uh, that Europe is looking at. Um, Russia is is waging a limited intervention. They're using less than 10% of their military power here. And that is a signal about their intentions. Um, but um, it is slowly, methodically grinding through the, the, the Donbass, uh, the parts that were held by the uh, Kiev regime, that were built up uh, over eight year, for eight years with steel and concrete fortifications built into a heavily agglomerated urban factory heavy area. And the Soviet Union built factories like fortresses with bomb shelters and everything for the Cold War. It's really a fa- it's terrain that favors the defender. Uh, very well. And Russia has a numerically inferior force, despite being the attacker by three times. Um, And they're slowly, methodically on their timetable, grinding through. And you'll hear lots of things about, oh, Russia's running out of this, and they're stalling, and they're exhausted. And then uh, every two to three weeks, you see the maps updated, uh, and you you see territory uh, change hands. And, uh, you know, that's that's what's going on. I think that Russia should call up its reserves uh, and get this over with quicker, because I think the longer it is dragged out, the more Ukrainians will die on both sides of the conflict. And that's the last thing I want. Um, and the destruction to Ukraine will be less. So in, but and there's a lot of Russians who are speaking up Russian politicians, uh, you know, opposition parties uh, in the Duma that are calling for for a greater Russian effort at this point, considering that they're effectively fighting and at this point demilitarizing the military stockpiles of all of NATO. Um, why do you use the term? Why do you use the word intervention instead of war? I'm just curious. What, why, what, what do Americans call it when they invade another country? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I don't know what the government calls it, but I called the Iraq war a war. I called the war in Afghanistan a war. And yeah. why do you call there, it an intervention? There are, first of all, they intervened in a civil conflict in Ukraine that was going on for eight years with the regime bombing, shelling the people in Donbass through the entirety of that period to subjugate them to their seizure of power in Kiev in 2014. Uh, And two, there are international legal reasons why no government calls a war a war anymore, right? Russia actually doesn't call it an intervention. They use their own terminology, special military operation. I like to call it an intervention because it's something that Americans and and Brits and uh, who have been intervening in so many countries for the last several decades can relate to. Right, but you're not part of the government. You're pretty independent, and you know it. Just it seems like it's almost um, a, a subtle attempt to make what's happening, irrespective of how you feel about it, not sound as bad as it is. Sure, because I don't think it is. I think it was entirely necessary, and I believe that it is a just and a good thing, as does my family in East Ukraine, despite the awful cost of it. But I was a heavy critic of the Putin administration from 2014, uh, you know, for over that eight year period, uh, because he should have intervened immediately when the government was mm. overthrown in Kiev, if not before. And my family uh, in East Ukraine, they hold a, a great deal of anger towards the Russian president because they begged and they pleaded and they asked for help 
and it was dribbled and drabbed for eight years uh, under this naive attempt at a Minsk Accords, which you know the uh, the West and and their you know Kiev client state just ripped up and have fully admitted that eh, we lied. We only agreed to it to build up a strong military. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Mark Sloboda. He is a Moscow-based international affairs and security analyst and a former contributing political analyst at RT. Uh, Mark, this week the big news was uh, the president, President Biden's announcement of $3 billion in fresh military aid for the Ukrainians in this conflict with Russia. What is your prediction as to what this will do? Is it likely that this $3 billion is going to help Ukraine win the war, for instance, or at least help Ukraine defend itself against Russian aggression, as was sold to members of Congress and the American people as the reason necessary for all this aid? Has the last forty billion? <laughs> not from where I'm standing. It's not not from where I'm sitting. No, I mean you really have to look at what is in these packages, and you will see that the U.S. isn't sending any more uh, high Mars uh, to the Kiev regime. This um, uh, multiple launch rocket system, high end system of the U.S. Um, although it has to be said that Kiev has already lost seven hundred of their own multiple launch rocket systems in this conflict that they had at the beginning. And Russia has thousands of them and they're, they've got several different gradients and their high end system is just as good and better in some regards, the tornado uh, than uh, the, the high Mars. So, but they're not even sending any more of those. They're not sending any more M triple seven howitzers because they've run out of stock that they can give them. They're, they're reduced to a lower grade of artillery piece, some ammunition, and it seems more like tokenism at this point and a bit of a sop to the U.S. military industrial complex mm. because they're just recycling money around. And I think everyone knows that. Um, but um, I, I do I have not seen anything on there. I mean, I know there's every few weeks there's another game changer. You know, first it was the um, the man pads uh, and the javelins and then. It was um, the um, uh, M777s, and then it was the HIMARS, and then it was kamikaze drones, and then uh, it was this and that. And uh, this last few weeks, it was the fairly antiquated harm anti-air defense missile that has been around since Vietnam and didn't do the U.S. that good for the uh, wild weasel pilots in that time period. Um it almost seems like they're getting rid of a lot of old inventory at this point that they know is not going to change the course. Um, but uh, they're just, I think they have to present the tokenism. And, and I honestly believe that uh, the U.S. goal here is, uh, I, they say, Austin has said that uh, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, that the goal is to weaken the Russian military. I, I don't think it actually works that way. Because the combat experience that the Russian military will gain here against a near peer competitor armed and trained and funded by NATO is something that no other country in the world has at this point, not even the U.S., despite their three decades of, of uh, military interventions against third world countries. Um, so I think the Russian military will probably come out learning a lot of lessons and stronger out of this. But I think they want as many Ukrainians on both sides of this conflict to die. 
um, one of the things that I think shocks a lot of Americans whenever it's on the news here, it doesn't matter left, right, or non-political, are these reports that the Russian military is indiscriminately bombing Ukrainian civilians. Is that accurate? No. I, I, and if you look at u- real U.S. military experts, the way they assess the course of the conflict, and I'm talking like Michael Kaufman at the uh, Center for New American Security and at the Naval War College Russian Military Analysis Center, they were flabbergasted when Russia went in because they were saying they seem to be trying to avoid uh, collateral damage and infrastructure damage to such a high degree in the beginning that they are uh, inhibiting their own war effort, right? That you're not talking to the talking heads when you're looking at the real U.S. military experts. That's what they're saying. And since then, Russian has taken the kids' gloves off. But we have heard from Amnesty International, right? All these cries that that Russia is hitting apartment buildings, Russia is hitting hospitals, Russia is hitting schools, and then Amnesty International comes out with what was painfully obvious to anyone who's following the conflict because the Kiev regime troops are constantly uploading videos of themselves in schools and hospitals and apartment buildings as uh, headquarters and firing points, is that they were using this, often without evacuating the people, um, as as uh, human shields, right? Uh, as as uh, you know, infrastructure, civilian infrastructure that had to be uh, bombed to be dealt with, uh, and using the people there as human shields, and then crying, "Oh, uh, Russians uh, is is attacking our schools and hospitals and so forth." And that's a war crime. That's actually a war crime on their side. They right. have a responsibility to move their combat operations. Now, you can say that's unrealistic and no one actually does that in war, but it doesn't change the realities of that. And you don't have to trust my word for it. Do you trust Amnesty International? No, I do, and I think it's atrocious. Um, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. I have to get this in before we run out of time. Uh, there was a, um, a a forum at which the German foreign minister, basically the equivalent of the United States Secretary of State, <laughs> Annalena Baerbock, yeah. said, uh, said the following. But if I give the promise to people in Ukraine, we stand with you as long as you need us, then I want to deliver, no matter what my German voters think, but I want to deliver to the people of Ukraine. And this is why, for me, it's important to be always very frank and clear. And this means every measure I'm taking, I have to be clear that this holds on as long as Ukraine needs me. We are facing now a wintertime where we will be challenged as democratic politicians. People will go on the street and say, we cannot pay our energy prices. And I will say, yes, I know, so we help you with social measures. But I don't want to say, okay, then we stop the sanctions against uh, Russia. We will stand with Ukraine, and this means the sanction will stay also in wintertime, even if it gets really tough for politicians. I thought that was simultaneously one of the most shocking and one of the most honest things I've ever heard a diplomat say. What she's essentially saying is she's going to support this war in Ukraine regardless of what the Germans want, the very people that elected her, or how it might impact their quality of life, despite countless Germans facing economic and logistical hardship from an increase in migrants and refugees, being told to shower less, travel less, do laundry less, and the possibility that many can't even heat their 
their homes. She's saying, I don't care what the people of my country want. I'm going down with the ship. I mean, were you as shocked as I was to hear that? Did you hear the narcissism? Ukraine needs me. How tough politicians will have it. This is the the number two in the German Green Party, quote unquote, that seems uh, more more aligned with uh, neo-American neocons than any environmental that has Germany now burning coal rather than gas, the dirtiest of of fossil fuels. Um, She I, I think what this does is this removes the masks. Right. The pretenses are off. This isn't about freedom or democracy on either side. This is about pure, naked geopolitics. And I I think Baerbach gave us a glimpse behind that mask. I'm going to have to end it there. Mark Sloboda, it's always an interesting conversation. I hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 